The world is a scary place. If you close your eyes to the good news of Jesus Christ, you will see things to fear everywhere. You will see things to fear in your body. You will see things to fear in your soul. You will see things to fear in your children. You will see things to fear in your spouse. If you forget to look up and to see Jesus, you will hear about wars and rumors of wars. You will hear about heterosexual marriage becoming illegal. You will hear about the Bible becoming illegal as they're trying to do in California. And we know that'll work because every society that outlaws the Bible, you know, has a great record with that. We fear poverty. We fear illness. We fear, fear insignificance. But as we learned last week, as we looked at the life and times of Father Abraham, we learned what Dallas Willard reminds us of, and that is that this world is a perfectly safe world place to be we learn from God's word if you are one who has trusted the promises of God for you in Christ this world is a perfectly safe place to be we will discover the same truth today trusting this truth is not easy there is much to fear in this world if you take your eyes off the good news. But God makes it simple. God makes it simple to absorb this truth that this world is a perfectly safe place to be when we trust the promises of God for us in Jesus. Today we will see that Paul declares the free and complete justification offered to everyone, everywhere, every when by examining God's interaction with and blessing of Father Abraham. We'll begin by looking at the first eight verses. What shall, then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, <laughs> but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are now counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, before we get going on this passage, I need to give a little caveat. Chapter 4 is a continuation of what Paul began in chapter 3, verse 26 to 31. And there, Paul is concerned about establishing the fact that Jews and Gentiles must be saved by trusting the promises of God and not by law-keeping. Now, you might actually go so far as to say this is the biggest point of chapter 4. And we see in Romans that the relationship between the Jews and Gentiles is a very significant theme in Romans and when we get to later chapters 9 through 11, we will revisit it thoroughly. 
Nevertheless, here in chapter 4, we also see that Paul speaks clearly to the fact that we are justified. That is, we are declared to have a right relationship with the personal creator king of the universe by trusting his promises for us in Christ. And I think that given where Paul is in his book, I think that's actually the more important lesson for us And since the mind cannot absorb what the seat cannot endure, we're going to stick with that one this evening. So, verses 1 and 2. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. Paul chose Abraham as his illustration here because First and foremost, because Abraham is the archetype. He is the first and he is the best example of one who is saved by grace through faith. Also, because he was the first Jew, he was also a Gentile before he was saved, before he was circumcised. But also because the Jews have always looked up to Abraham as the most important person in the Old Testament. But even more important than that, in the first century, there is plenty of record to say that it was common to believe that Abraham was in fact saved by works. But oh, this must not stand. And Paul must take pains to argue against it. So he brings up this idea that it is absolutely absurd to boast before God. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now this is freeing. You are free. You can let go of your hurry and your stress because all you have has been given to you. And if it is taken away, you are still held by God who loves you and will never leave you nor forsake you. So relax. Rejoice. You are free. Paul continues. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, of course, the key word as we get to these verses is believe. So, what is it that you do that is praiseworthy when you're believing someone? Well, not much. In fact, this believing or this trusting another person is kind of the anti-doing because what you're doing is you're letting the other person work for you. And this passage is interesting because the word that's translated believe and the word that is translated faith are related. They are the same word except one is a verb and one is a noun. Now, you've heard me say this before, last couple of years. When theologians try to define faith biblically, they come up with three independent elements. And the first one is you must know. 
This knowledge of a content must exist. You must actually know something about Jesus in order to believe Jesus. But then you must acknowledge. You must recognize this is true. It's, this is for me. This is, this is a fact, but it's also a fact for me. But then you must trust it. You must move forward with it. But in English, we've kind of corrupted the word believe. Because believe means everything from believing in a fairy godmother to believing that gun control means anything but shooting with two hands. Some of you got that. But faith is even worse than that. To have faith is to lose your head about something that everybody knows can't be true, but you are honor-bound to say it is. Faith and belief have just been destroyed by our culture. That doesn't mean those, they're not good words. What it means is our culture has returned to the dark ages. And what was it that pulled us out of the dark ages? It was reviving a biblical understanding of knowledge of acknowledging and trusting God's word. It is to go to God's word and pull out the promises and understand these promises are for me, they are for you. And then going out in your life and living as if they are true for you. So these three elements that Paul is bringing out here involve our head it involves our heart and involves our hands. And when these three elements are combined, it puts you into a relationship with God that is counted as righteousness. Look what Paul says in verse 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, if the key word in the previous verses is believe, the key word in these verses is bless. The word is markarios. And one who is markarios is one who is a recipient of divine favor. God has poured out a measure of favor on this person. And that person is blessed. That's the word that we have come to describe this experience. God has come down, so to speak, and has granted some good to that person that they did not have before. Now, I used to be in the crowd that would get upset when I would read the NIV and I would see that the NIV translated this word happy. I think blessed is or blessed is a better translation than happy. But clearly one who has been granted divine favor should be happy, right? We should rejoice and our attitudes should be reflect that. In fact, uh, one of our favorite preachers here at this church is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And one of his contentions as to why the church is as ineffective as it is, 
is because there's a lot of grumpy Christians out there. If that applies to you, that's between you and Jesus, not me. But hey, get happy because God has blessed you. And, and frankly, you just can't understand the English language if reading Romans 4, 6 to 8 doesn't just... Woohoo! Yes! Praise Jesus! Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Win the lottery? Great. Be cured of cancer? Wonderful. Narrowly missed by a car flying by you? These are reasons to celebrate for sure. But your eternity just changed? The one thing you have to do in this life is done for you? My goodness. This is a praise Jesus moment. This is a rejoice and you all are asleep. Come on, rejoice with me. Praise Jesus. And trust in the promises of God for you in Jesus. You need to trust these promises when you're feeling depressed and, oh, I did that again. Wait a minute. I'm forgiven. Woohoo! When someone does something to you, again wait 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 okay lord that is important but man i'm forgiven thank you i got one no matter what else is going on in life rejoice now that doesn't mean you're not going to be sad that doesn't mean you're never going to be down because you're just physically drained But it does mean while these other things are happening, you can rejoice and you can be happy and you can just say, okay, I got all these other things going on. Lord, I need you. Look, all these things going on, please. But thank you, Jesus. I am forgiven. And whatever is going on in, out, around me, I know that all this is going to come to an end. And so, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And then Paul continues in verse 9. In verse 9 to 12, he says this. Is this blessing the forgiveness of our sins that should cause us to rejoice? Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it counted before or after he was circumcised? It was not before, but after he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, in these verses, Paul deals with one of the greatest questions concerning Scripture anywhere. And he deals with one of the major themes of Romans again. We had how do Jews and Gentiles relate, but then we also have a major theme in Romans, how does the law and gospel relate? Here's the bottom line. Righteousness precedes the law. 
Now, that needs some unpacking. Abraham, because he trusted the Lord, the personal creator king of the universe, God said, you're going to have kids, Abraham, and you're going to have land. I got none of either of them, God, but I trust you. And God said, because you trust me, a relationship has begun that will never end. That was before he was circumcised. That was before he, there, there was a law, really at all. Now, of course, were there, did people know not to murder each other? Yeah, I'm not going to get into the whole natural law thing. But what I'm trying to say here is, righteousness, a right relationship with the Lord was established before the law came. Now the law came and the law is important. We've talked about that now a couple of times and we're going to continue as we go through Romans. But righteousness, a right relationship with the Lord precedes the law. Here's the way I like to think about this. We are saved by trusting the promises of God through us, for us through Christ. Now, our works, those things that we do because God told us to or because God told us not to do so, is a demonstration of that trust. God, I trust you. You told me to do this. I'm doing it. Even if it doesn't make, seem to make sense to me. Even if, even if I don't quite understand it, Lord, this is what I believe you've called me to do, so I'm going to do it. We don't work to get salvation. We rejoice in salvation. Therefore, we work. Now, this, this may be a trite illustration, but a guy who has been looking for solid, steady work for a long time and finally lands that job, man, you want me to sweep floors? No problem. You want me to clean toilets? You got it. I just want steady, honorable employment. And all of these other things, just okay, yes, woo, okay. That's, that's a trite analogy, but when we have the greatest problem that could possibly be solved for us, Lord, you want me to sweep the floors? You got it. Lord, you want me to follow you to Mount Moriah? You got it. And, and that's just, it, it's... Work isn't a part of the equation then anymore. Now Paul makes this point by saying that Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised himself or his family. And this righteousness precedes the law. And then he turns it towards us so that we understand what is going on. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not before, after, but before he was circumcised. Now why does Paul bring up circumcision here? If you don't know what that is, Google it later. You'll figure it out. For at least two reasons. 
One is because Abraham was the first person circumcised. He was the one through whom the whole idea about cutting the covenant in this way was made. Enough of that. But secondly, because in first century Judaism, circumcision was one of the four signs that they looked at to show their Jewishness. Circumcision, keeping the Sabbath, living kosher, which involved more than just what foods you ate, and worshiping at the temple. Now, again, don't ask me how circumcision was assigned to the average dude walking down the street. I just don't want to know. <laughs> but Paul wanted to make a point. Justification by faith is prior to anything that would become a Mosaic covenant, or uh, excuse me, a Mosaic law. Not only temporally, Abraham was justified before he was commanded to circumcise in his family, himself and his family, but also logically. And we see this in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness, so that righteousness would be counted to us as well. Now, whether you or your male kin are circumcised or not, you can partake in the righteousness offered by grace through faith because you are a child of Abraham in the most important way. And that is by trusting the same God that he trusted. Paul does not deny the value of circumcision. Paul does not deny the value of the law properly understood. We must obey the Lord. That command is clear, continues to be clear in the New Testament. We are commanded in both Testaments to fear the Lord. But fearing the Lord means that you are more afraid of putting yourself into a wrong relationship with God than anything else in the universe. It means that you understand that the most important thing is to keep your eyes not on the elephant in the room, abortion, homosexual marriage, whatever elephant you want to start talking about. Fearing the Lord means you keep your eye on being right with God, not the PC police. Even if it costs you in the future your job. Even if it costs you, Lord, spare us, your children. Fearing the Lord means that you understand that having a right relationship to the Lord as opposed to the PC police is far more worth it. Plain English, please, Pastor. Okay, well, here it is. The elephant in the room right now is a woman's right to murder her baby. It is better to speak up against wanton genocide than to have people think that you're one of those reasonable Christians who doesn't get involved in other people's bedrooms. Look, I don't care what happens in their bedrooms. And I don't want them to care what happens in mine either. But the point is justice. 
are we going to care about the 55 million babies who have been murdered? Or are we going to care about how the people on our boards in the city think that we're a reasonable Christian or not? It's a temptation. I'd rather be kicked off every board that I'm on in the city than to run afoul of my relationship with the Lord. Now, Paul brings this home to us. He helps us understand it in verse 12. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith and to make him, Abraham, the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Plain English. Abraham's story is your story if you trust the same God that he trusted. Trust in the promises of God for you and Jesus. This means nothing less than the world in this current culture. We are once again in a culture that seeks to divide us at every single possible point of contact. And you and I must recognize that those who are believers around us are closer to us than many of our blood relatives. So act like family with them. Uphold them. Listen to them. Hear them. Move forward with them. I'm not saying don't love your family, the ones who are lost. But this is your family. Learn to live like that. Learn not to just go into your own little head and think how you want it done and never go out and ask. Oh my goodness. We, we must, as a church, learn to love each other better because that's the only thing that the world is going to see that will make them think that missing football on Sunday morning is worth it. Paul continues, verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. For if the adherents of the law... Who are to be the, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is transgression. Okay, so here it is, the relationship of the law and the good news. And so far in this passage, what we have seen is that the law is powerless to affect justification. The law cannot bring you into a right relationship with the Lord. That is absolutely essential to understand that. That's what Paul is getting at here. And by way of reminder, to be just, justified means that you are declared righteous by the personal creator, king of the universe. To be justified means that God has declared you to be in a right relationship with him. Now, this is crucial both for understanding the relationship between Jew and Gentile and for understanding the relationship between the Christian and the law of Moses. Paul finally uses a word, it's the first time it occurs in Romans, promise. Promise. 
He's wrapping up this part of the discussion, the fact that the law cannot declare you righteous, and he talks about promise. As is want for Paul, Paul alternates between having a sentence that lasts 14 verses, and then he goes to the other extreme where he compresses everything to the point almost of being unintelligible. And here, Paul says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. What? Paul, give me a break here. In Ephesians, you took 11 verses to finish a sentence. Now you give us this sentence that's almost unintelligible. Well, here we go. What he's doing here is he's summing up the argument that he has just made about the fact that the law cannot bring justification. It brings the opposite. It brings wrath. The law brings wrath. But then he says, but there, without the law, there is no transgression. In other words, you cannot be justified by the law because the law doesn't bring justification. It brings wrath. Because it brings transgression. Okay, now here's where we have to do a little bit of unpacking so that we get what Paul is saying. There's four main words that's translated sin in the Old Testament. <coughs> I gotta warm up my throat to pronounce Hebrew. Chatah conveys the underlying idea of missing the mark or deviating from the goal. There's another one. Pashach refers to an action in breach of a relationship. It's often translated rebellion or revolution. Awa conveys a literal meaning of deliberate perversion or twisting what you know is right. And Avon stresses the idea of the guilt that arises from deliberate wrongdoing. I know this is what you want me to do, God, and I am not going to do it. And that is the word that's most often translated transgression. Paul specifically, I think, uses the word transgression in this case, and not one of the other three primary words translated sin. Because he wants to emphasize that the ultimate end of the law is that it turns erring or missing the mark into a deliberate behavior against the personal creator king of the universe. If we don't have a relationship with somebody, we might still sin against them, but it takes a close relationship with someone to really try to get them in your sinning. It takes a marriage relationship or a parent-child relationship to make sinning really deep. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're probably lying to yourself. And this idea that God, I am going to do it my way come hell or high water, well, that's exactly what it is. And so, Paul is saying here that the law 
just absolutely, positively cannot save you because what the law ultimately in its end will do because of the sinfulness of our heart is it makes us raise our fists at God and we transgress. Only promise can bring justification. Only promise can be what God uses to declare us righteous, to bring us into a right relationship with him. As I was saying, verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. You, brother, you, sister, are included in all the blessing of Abraham when you trust the same God that Abraham trusted. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now specifically, the promise that he was given was children and land. You're not necessarily given that promise. But you are given promises. And it's when you trust those promises that you are in this relationship with the Lord that the law cannot give you. Because the law, mixed with our sinful nature, ultimately brings out this transgression. But in Abraham's case, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That, that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Are you waiting on God to come through on some promise for you? If you are, you're in good company. Are you waiting? Are you being patient as you seek the Lord to give you relief about something? Maybe you can't see how it could possibly happen on this side of eternity. You might be right. Because God's promises are not primarily temporal anyways. And his promises very often may not come true until we get to see him face to face. But if that's you, you are in very good company. You are in the same family as our father Abraham. And that is why when we trust the promises of God for us in Jesus, we have a right relationship with the Lord. And here's the punchline of the whole chapter. Verse 23. The words, it was counted to him, were not written for Abraham's sake alone, 
but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and who was raised for our justification. Paul is saying, Abraham's story can be your story when you trust the same God he trusted. Paul affirms what we saw last week was affirmed by Moses. Look at the story of Abraham. See how his life went. He went from this loser wretch who was also a man of faith. Man, I feel like that loser wretch more often than I feel like a man of faith. But my feelings is not what is central here. The truth of God's word is what's central. And you can trust His word. You can trust His promise. Trust the promises of God for you and Jesus. My friends, is the world a scary place for you? Trust God's promises that even though you may lose your head in the service of the kingdom, no ultimate harm will come to you. And that's why you do not need to fear. That's why David was able to say, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Trust that God who is greater than all flesh. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope that you have given us through Abraham. Let us live accordingly and bring glory to your name. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for coming.